Local voices, local conversations. NapaBroadcasting.com Thanks for joining us back here at Napa Broadcasting. The wine industry is the lifeblood of our economy. In many ways, we've always thought of ourselves as sui generis, as a wine region, except that we're not. We are simply part of, and even sometimes a reflection of, the broader national and global wine economy. One in which change is constant, and those that don't hear the hoofbeats behind them will be eliminated. The music business, the radio business, the movie business, the taxi business, the travel business. Think of all the things that once existed and that are now gone, disappeared by the forces of creative destruction. How then is the premium wine business doing in this changing economy? One in which demographics are changing, globalization and trade are creating new pressures, climate change is impacting growing regions, and millennial tastes are ever-evolving. For the answer to all of these questions, we don't have to go to Davos or to Burgundy, but we can find them right here in Napa, in the person of Rob McMillan, the executive vice president and founder of Silicon Valley Bank's wine division. They've just issued their 2020 annual State of the Wine Industry Report, and it is my pleasure once again to welcome Rob McMillan to Napa Broadcasting. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Certainly change is happening. You've been talking for a couple of years now about changes coming to the wine industry. And uh, to a certain extent, people have not really listened, but suddenly maybe they're paying attention now. Talk a little about that. Well, it's it's harder to ignore <laughs> when, it's, when it's in your face. Um, you know, I think uh, last year and year before, I started to talk about changes in consumerism and uh, yeah we're a we're a very happy industry we like we like good news and uh, we're also a, a family industry um, so you don't see financial statements normally you know you're, you walk out to your neighbor's winery and you say how's it going and the, the answer is pretty much always the same it's great <laughs> it's always great right yeah so it just it's kind of the way we are and because of the lack of real good data and information um, I think it's those interactions where we say, hell are things, and we all say it's great, that lead us maybe a bit astray um, as a whole, but but not everyone. Um, certainly, like I said, last year and year before, as I started to talk about things, uh, uh, I might have been uh, in, improperly labeled a, a doom and gloomer, but, um, but now that the the other shoe has dropped. I think uh, everybody's recognizing some of the issues that we have to face. And sometimes things being great leads to some of the problems that we have today. One of the things you, you've talked about is the oversupply, the almost glut at, that really began around 2018. Yeah. Um, well, it's 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 kind of good news, bad news. It's in some respects, it's good news in a way for the wine producer because that lowers their cost of goods. It's bad news for the grape grower because in some cases, even in Napa this last year, there were grapes that were hung on the vines. And it's not the first time that that's happened, by the way. It's it's happened in other periods. But this is happening for a, a reason that I don't know that, that has really happened before. Um, the last time we saw declining uh, volume sales was 1993. Um, and it, it was a little bit like this, but, but really the industry was still kind of getting its footing. It's, even in Napa, it was still get, getting its footing. Um, what we're experiencing now is this rotation of consumers where the boomers, like a lot of uh, retail in America, the boomers are, are aging, and yet they still control uh, about 75% of the net worth and 50% of discretionary income. 
Um, and the young consumers uh, are the ones that would have to take it over just because uh, of the, the millennial uh, cohort size. There's a little bit of a gap in the middle, which is Gen X. And Gen X is doing their part, but the young consumers aren't, aren't consuming uh, as quickly as the uh, older consumers, the boomers, are, are uh, I don't want to say going out to pasture, but, <laughs> but, but wandering off. Wandering off, and I don't even know if I want to say that because that sounds bad too. But, but certainly, uh, there's no question that the uh, that the older consumers, you know, they say death and taxes is a sure thing, and so we don't have to think too hard to see that uh, older consumers are going to slow their consumption patterns over time. Right, and even the older consumers that are still around, as you say, are slowing their consumption patterns. They may not have as much disposable income, and and they're just not spending at the same levels. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, again, normal. You hit retirement, you start to think about how you're spending your money, what what you can spend it on, and and also as people age. Uh, I mean, I, I know I can't drink like I did when I was thirty, but <laughs> uh, you know, beyond that, it uh, it uh, kind of gets in the way of medicine and. Uh, and uh, you know, like I said, it's you know your liver can't tolerate that kind of that kind of uh, thing anymore. So you know, we we naturally we just slow our consumption patterns down. So that's that's what we're dealing with right now. And when we see uh, grapes hanging in the vineyards, because we have volume consumed dropping, uh, the only way out of that was well, two ways. One, you increase demand, or two. Uh, you pull out vines. Now, I'm not suggesting Napa Valley is going to be pulling out vines because we happen to be at the pinnacle of wine production um, in the United States. So I think we can sell our grapes. Um, it's just going to take a, a little bit of adaptation. And um, But, you know, we may not sell them all. As a matter of fact, I guarantee you, we won't sell them for the same prices we have over the last four or five years. Talk a little bit about what the numbers look like, what the practical reality is of some of these broader changes, these broader trends that you're talking about. How much less are we selling? How much of a fundamental economic difference is this demographic change going to make? Well, right now, on a, on a volume basis, when you look at, um, when you look at how much is uh, actually being overproduced, in the state, we're looking at pulling out 30 to 50,000 acres um, just to keep up right now. Um, if we're going to go that path, uh, you know, for Napa, although we are seeing declines in tasting room visitation um, and we are seeing uh, a slowdown, if you will, in sales, we still have sales growth, uh, but it, it's slowing. Uh, growth is good. So Napa is Napa is not bulletproof. Um, there's no question there's cracks, um, and there's no question that we have to adjust. But we're looking at uh, somewhere around three to five percent growth in the in Napa in terms of sales dollars, and probably more flat on term in terms of volume. To what extent is competition from other wine regions here in California having an impact on Napa? But it has a small impact. Um, you know, when you look at the regions that are doing well right now, the ones that are the more obvious ones are the uh, the west side of Paso Robles and uh, Oregon, specifically the Willamette Valley, and then uh, eastern Washington. Now, each of those regions have lower tasting fee um, and uh, better price if you're just looking at pure price. Now, that, that may not be better value. Value is in the eye of the beholder, but 
but there is lower price. And I think with the with the fires that we've had in the last you know two out of the three years, um, people that were looking to come to Napa Sonoma had to rethink their plans and uh, and during those periods and and so the evidence suggests that uh, particularly in those three regions they all um, started to see a bit of an uptick in in visitation and so I think uh, in some respects those regions have been discovered by uh, by wine tourists um, and that's to the disadvantage of uh, of Napa Sonoma with respect to prices in Napa and the price point for Napa wine, talk about that in the context of what millennials are looking for and what millennials are willing to pay. Well, I think first you have to say, uh, yeah, it's difficult to talk in averages. I think you can get into troubles unless you recognize what you got. So Napa is, again, the, the pinnacle of uh, wine production in the United States, and, and the best brands uh, you know the the ones that are making the best wines and and maybe even the most expensive wines probably won't see any impact at all because we'll always have wealthy uh, of of any generation. That's just that's just the way it works. Um, but you know as the as the, we start to move down a little bit in price points, even in Napa, it starts to become more competitive. And and with the younger consumer uh, in particular, it's not just other regions, but it's um, it's other beverages. It's in alcoholic beverages in, in particular. Um, today, roughly 60% of consumers that do drink are drinking at least two categories. They're drinking, you know, wine and beer or wine and spirits or spirits and beer or whatever. Um, but they're not, they're not drinking. They're not just wine drinkers. They don't, they don't identify as wine drinkers anymore. Um, so part of the competition comes from other alcoholic beverages um, you know, like White Claw, like Spike Seltzer's, um, and uh, other comes from different regions, uh, Provence Rosé, Prosecco, uh, as an example. Uh, and then still other comes from things like kombucha and uh, ciders and, uh, you know, even, even um, uh, sports beverages. Uh, some, of the, some of the non-alcoholic beverages actually play into this as well. So the, the younger consumers, not only are they drinking uh, less, but they're, uh, they're drinking less than prior generation did at similar times. Do you have a sense that, that the wine industry, and in Napa in particular, is beginning to accept this reality regarding millennials? And can they adapt to this reality? It's, I would say, generally, um, there's still reluctance. And, and as I said, part of it is, part of it is okay. The hardest thing to do is to make a change when things are going okay. And I would still say in Napa, things are going okay. It's not great. It's not the way it was. It's just going okay. And so now the question is, are you going to ride these trends and how long are you going to ride them? Are you going to wait until, you know, something becomes more obvious and, and worse? And I think there are going to be a, a, a percentage of people, maybe 25, 30, 40%. I don't know. Uh, but they're probably not going to change. And the successful wineries are going to be the ones that see this change. It's pretty obvious now. And, and start to make uh, a, you know, adaptation. Very different um, to think about the kind of changes that we're talking about because we've been dealing with a trend of increasing consumption and demand now for 30 years. 
Um, so for a lot of wineries, this has always been the way it is. And you go back 30 years ago, um, I'm going to guess in Napa is probably half as many wineries. Um, and so all of those new wineries that have, that have come up, this is what they're used to. And so to think to change the model, to adapt, it's going to be difficult. Um, but uh, adaptation is needed. And, and I think, you know, there's an opportunity. I, and I don't say that in a, you know, how people always say, oh, you know, <laughs> your greatest problem is your greatest opportunity. And that sounds like BS to me. <laughs> but I, I actually believe that, that the young consumer uh, is the greatest opportunity. We are not marketing to that young consumer. And that's the problem. Is the advantage in this going to the larger corporations, the big companies that have been growing through consolidation in the wine business, do they have the ability to move faster and and to turn faster to adapt to this new reality? And and also, are they less wedded in the old ways of doing things? Um, they have, the larger wineries have a historical uh, problem in that, in that they're producing wines that are lower priced. And, uh, you know, that's a model that suited a prior to, you know, my parents' generation, uh, mature generation. I'm a boomer. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a problem because you have all these fixed assets and you just can't, you just can't walk away from whether that's vineyards or production facilities. You've got to figure out how to compete at those levels. So I, I think the large wineries are at a greater disadvantage on the one hand, on the other hand, they see the problem pretty clearly at this point, and um, and they are willing to make some changes. Uh, and I think in in the end, those kind of changes will help everybody because I think we'll see uh, advertising. Um, we might see new concepts. We might see different kinds of packaging, and uh, and and all of those things can can help evolve the industry um, and uh, have it be discovered by the the younger consumer. Will we see some of these larger global corporations, the treasuries, the constellations of the world, growing and maybe even buying more Napa properties? Well, probably because Napa's uh, an iconic uh, region, and uh, and you know I know that there are foreign companies right now that are in the process of closing deals in Napa, as an example. I know one one in particular, anyway. Um, so that's that's likely to continue, but. The kind of trends that we're seeing here are the same ones that are being experienced and have been experienced in Europe for a while. Um, and so they're a little bit more cautious about the kind of properties that they're looking for. Um, uh, but they'll, they'll still, to some extent, you know, want to come over and, and, and buy things. M&A, though, for the, for the near term, is in a kind of a more difficult time, uh, despite interest rates being cooperative for M&A. Uh, the market itself is just a, a little softer, and so I think that the kind of ac- acquisitions we'll see outside of foreign companies coming in and buying some things, the kind of acquisitions that will happen are, uh, I'm not going to say distressed, but um, uh, wineries that maybe should have thought about selling five years ago. Right. I mean, there's a whole group of wineries, and, and we've seen a few of these sales recently, where families have got into the business back in the, in the mid to late 60s, and, and really it's kind of played out. These are people that are approaching retirement, boom, older boomers that, that may want out of the business, that don't have family that wants to continue the business. 
uh, you know, th- those those kind of sales have been happening uh, beneath our feet now for the last 20 years. And uh, at this point, I'd say, um, you know, half, at least half, if not more, of those have already taken place. Not just sales, though. There there have been, you know, transitions. There's, there's uh, you know, families that are, uh, you know, second generation in particular, uh, and, and sometimes third generation now that are, stepping up and, and trying to run these properties. But that's, that's always part of the part of the uh, Achilles heel of any family owned businesses. How do you transition? What's the next step? And, uh, you know, in this very happy of industries, uh, thinking about your own mortality and uh, how long you're going to do something you love and enjoy is a difficult thought. And I think uh, a lot of owners put those thoughts off probably longer than they should. Do you see, as you look around the valley, do you see the marketing talent, the marketing ability there or not to begin to reach out and and really sell to, market to, make the changes to reach these new millennial consumers? Um, no, I don't, actually. Um, and, you know, I, I, I say that uh, in a very loving way, <laughs> but, yeah. When we when we go back uh, and we look at uh, 2010, that that era, um, one of the hardest things to find was somebody that actually understood direct consumer sales out of the tasting room and understood wine clubs. Uh, the bank back then we started producing uh, metrics and benchmarks so that the industry had something to work with. Uh, but you know, actually finding somebody to do what you would think. Uh, would have been happening for for at least de- a decade, if not longer, uh, really didn't exist. And uh, my encouragement was to find people way, way back then, find people from the outside that were uh, working in hospitality, bring them in, and and uh, you know help grow our knowledge by expanding our knowledge base into other um, uh, hospitality uh, industries. But very little of that happened. Um, today, we need to have marketers that understand data. Um, and then understand this new consumer because the values between the older consumer, the boomer consumers, we, you know, we liked to use as an example, we like to wear, you know, our Jordache jeans and our IZOT t-shirts and our, <laughs> um, our uh, Ray-Ban sunglasses and driving our BMWs and making fun of us, of course, but, uh, but we liked wearing our success on our sleeves and the young consumer you know, to the extent they wear success, it's in a much more understated way. Um, conspicuous consumption is kind of an anathema to them. Uh, to, even to the extent they did have the money, they, they're probably, uh, well, matter of fact, they are less obvious about the way they spend. Um, and so when you start to think about how you're going to market to this consumer, you really got to start by understanding these differences. And today we're in the wine business, we're still talking about long days, cool nights, pHs, harvest dates, um, uh, you know, special soils, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. And that's work for the boomer. But the young consumer, uh, when you, you dig in, what you find, one of the things that they're more interested in than anything is, is health and health-related components. So as an example, calories. When you look at what's working right now, uh, spike seltzers are just flying off the shelf. The, the growth rate's uh, huge. And part of that uh, consumption is coming at the expense of the wine industry. 
when you look at a bottle of, or pardon me, a can of truly or white claw, you'll see things like, you know, non-GMO, uh, natural flavors, uh, uh, low sugar. Um, you'll see calories on the label. And when you look in the back, you can pronounce everything that's on there. And there's a, you know, a paucity of ingredients. So it's, it's easy for the, that consumer to understand. And then they, they say what, what's in the ingredients in a way that sounds healthy. As an example, they'll say, uh, uh, truly has in the back of their, their, uh, their can, it says, uh, cold brewed sugar cane. And uh, I don't know exactly what that is, but I have a suspicion it's refined sugar, <laughs> but it sounds a lot healthier. Um, and so the, the consumer today, as an example, the young consumer, they believe that drinking White Claw or Truly, uh, any spike seltzer, it's more healthy than drinking wine because they don't know better. Um, the wine industry took off in the 90s because of the French paradox and uh, Arthur Kanzler's work on the J-shaped uh, consumption curve and the Mediterranean diet, all those things kind of conspired in the late 90s, early 2000s and helped, drove consum- helped drive consumption higher. Um, today, we're just not using the same things that the spirits industry is using successfully. And so the spirits industry is growing, um, you know, at the expense of the wine industry. Talk about brand loyalty and branding and even personalities wrapped up in that. Is that having any impact at all? Does it have any impact anymore with respect to millennial consumers? Uh, yeah, in, in places. So if you have a, uh, you know, a star, uh, an R&B artist or something like that, or a sports, you know, that, that kind of uh, thing has always helped. Um, but to the extent you are trying to brand a, uh, an individual that owns the winery and, and making that your brand, oh, you know, somebody that made, maybe they were self-made, but they made their money and fill in the bl- fill in the blank industry. And, uh, and now they own this winery and, and, and they want you to come. The, the young consumer, you know, they, they listen to the news and they're hearing, you know, millionaires and billionaires and, and they, they look at, you know, successful people at times as being part of the problem. Uh, you know, they probably didn't come about it uh, honestly. It's kind of the, the suspicion that a lot of them carry. So we really can't now um, talk about successful owners in the same way that we might have done it with the, with the boomer generation that admired people like that. So t- today it's got to be uh, celebrities, um, you know, whether it's sports or, or otherwise, but we can't, we can't have a, uh, a person be at the at the center of branding. It's gotta be something else. And, and it's probably more cause-based, you know, what do you stand for? Why are you in business? And it can't be just to make money. There's gotta be a better reason. And that, that's another thing that is important for that young consumer to understand. How fragile is the economics how closely could we tip into negative growth at this point? Well, we're close right now. Um, so, uh, you know, where that, where that stops, I, uh, I, I really can't tell you. I, I can tell you that I'm trying to work with a number of uh, the larger wine companies to try to arrest the, the, the direction of, of these trends. Uh, like in, in any kind of a trend, 
nothing changes until something changes. <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to get out of help out ahead of it. You know, it's not my job as a banker, but uh, but this is the industry that I'm, I work in and I love, and so it's what I'm doing uh, with the help of my organization. Um, trying to get these larger companies to coalesce, come together, see the problems, uh, and identify solutions, and we're we're uh, in the middle of trying to do that right now. Um, that's a starting point. Inevitably, though, the vast majority of this industry, whether that's Napa or, or other places, we all have the same thing to do, and that is to uh, you know start to talk about all these things like natural. Um, you know, if, if, if natural is an important component, there is no alcoholic beverage that is more natural than wine, and we're just not telling the consumer. And so that's part of the sales and marketing that we've got to, uh, to evolve to. Um, and it's branding, it's packaging, it's carbon footprint. Um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot that we have to do, and there's a lot that we can do. And that's why I do look at this as being an opportunity. It's, it's not like, you know, it's not like we have, uh, uh, you know, a problem that is terminal and there's no way to get out of it. Um, it it's, it's really our fault that we haven't told the story of the helpfulness uh, and the, the health benefits of wine uh, over beer and spirits, as an example. Two other areas real quickly before I let you go. I want to get your thoughts on one is the impact of, of trade restrictions right now and trade policy, how that's affecting the industry here, and also the, the fear of climate change. Yeah, the, the trade policies impacted um, the importation of, uh, of, of definitely of uh, rosé in particular, uh, French rosé. Um, the, there's a 25% tariff on, uh, on French products, French wine at this point. Uh, there's some carve outs to that, but I'll just leave it at that. And, um, and so you've seen that impact, um, it's rather substantial. Uh, a lot of people thought that, that tariffs would be good for the industry. And I, I personally don't, our industry, I'm talking about the U S industry. And I, I personally don't see it, um, uh, because, the, the alcohol beverage consumer isn't just going to go to another wine. We could just as easily chase them over to Spike Seltzer um, or craft beer or New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. If they don't like rosé, you know, if they, if they don't want to pay what, uh, the price of a Provence rosé, you know, it's not necessarily are they going to find that solution in an American product. They very, very easily could find it with a, a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or something like that. So I, I don't think there's a lot of help uh, to the U.S. industry, and matter of fact, there's a lot of pain that the importers have to deal with, and um, to the extent they can't exercise their, uh, uh, you know, their relationships that they built with in, in France and Italy, et cetera, for, for decades, they can't monetize those, uh, and, you know, their sales drop. They lose their businesses. They lose their livelihoods. And you have collateral destruction. There's no way to get around that. You can't just go to Argentina and say, well, I'm going to start an Argentinian uh, import company because now you got to deal with relationships down there. And by the way, there's already people that are doing that importing. So um, on the whole, the, the, the whole thing on tariffs uh, isn't a, a help, I don't think, for, uh, for anybody in the U.S. really. Uh, so your other question, I think, was on climate change, and that's that's a little bit more uh, deep um, into the discussion. Um, what I tell people is 
you know, whether you want to agree with the science or not, um, you at least can say to yourself, um, you know, will doing something like limiting your carbon footprint, could that possibly have a, po- a positive effect or could that possibly have a negative effect? And I don't think very many people would say that has a negative effect. So why not go along with it, even if you want to argue the science? <laughs> but once you get past that, then you say, okay, as, as an industry, what do you do? Well, there's some things you maybe can do. And, um, and I think that, that uh, you know, research universities are, are trying to work through thinking about, uh, you know, more drought tolerant uh, rootstocks and, and, and things like that. that. That's been happening for a long time. Um, the, the problem with the science right now is that while we can see the, that there is climate change right now, we can't very well predict what that's going to mean in a microclimate way. So anybody that lives in the Bay Area uh, is probably aware of the famous Mark Twain quote who said, uh, the coldest winter he ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. And and the reason for that is, you know, that Pacific Ocean, that big blue thing out there, um, it sucks in the fog when the valley gets hot. So when we think about the Napa Valley in particular, some people have said, oh, well, it's going to turn into Fresno. Well, that's probably not going to happen um, because the, the greater likelihood is if it gets hotter in the interior valley, um, we very easily could see, uh, you know, colder temperatures, especially in southern Napa. You, you might see a, a greater influence of fog, as an example. So it, it's not as simple as saying, well, let's just plant warmer varietals. Um, you, know, you know, let's change our varietals because the truth is, if you wanted to really go down that path and say, well, let's just put in a, a varietal, let's just say it's Carneros, it's a cooler area, and let's just plant it all the Cabernet right now. Well, it might work, but there's no, there's no way to understand if it will. It may get colder, and you may be way ahead of the curve. So you're, you're more likely going to create a worse situation for yourself than a better one by, by trying to predict uh, the change in a microclimate way. So we can't we can't really make those distinctions right now. Um, we can we can listen, we can talk, we can uh, we can research, uh, but actually making you know those kind of changes I think are problematic today. Rob McMillan, Silicon Valley Bank's Wine Division. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Keep up with all the local candidates and issues on NapaBroadcasting.com.